everybody. For those of you on the East Coast and uh, kind of on that segment of the United States, I hope that you have been staying warm. Uh, we've had a bit of an interesting uh, podcast episode this week because uh, we weren't able to do our interviews. Our office was shut down actually one day when we would normally record the uh, podcast interview and everything like that. So did a little, little bit different today. We actually had uh, Patty call in for the Insider's Report, so the audio quality won't be quite as good there. Um, and then I end up doing a monologue talking about um, the five keys to building a merchant sales team, something I've actually had in the works for a long time and just didn't have the right, didn't know when I wanted to talk about it. And so we decided to talk about that uh, today. And so I'd like to thank you so much for joining us on this special edition of our podcast where I'm going to do an extended questions from the field and talk about the five keys uh, to building a merchant sales team. And then, of course, also the insiders report, which we're excited about. And so let's go ahead and jump right into that insiders report. And then we'll get to the five keys to building and managing a merchant sales team. This is the Insiders Report with Patty Murphy, brought to you by Greensheet.com, a premier resource for the electronic payments industry. The Greensheet has been on the beat since 1983, always focused on boosting the feet on the street in our evolving sphere. Okay, so everybody, I wanted to talk today about security and about the need for security to be priority one in payments. The challenge in my mind is getting everyone with a stake in the business to get on board with, the notion, with this notion of security as a top priority. I was reminded of this last month um, when I participated in a panel discussion at the Northeast Acquirers Association Conference. The panel, which included representatives from MasterCard, Visa, another uh, industry publication, and, and me, was discussing the benefits of tokenization. And one of the panelists described how difficult it is proven to explain tokenization to friends and acquaintances. Most otherwise intelligent people just don't get it, he said. And that got me to thinking, how can the industry make tokenization, or any card security protocol for that matter, more reliable, or more relatable rather, to merchants and to consumers? You know, maybe simplifying our dialogue around security would be a good place to start. Perhaps we could come up with a, with a new moniker for tokenization. And a phrase I've been toying with is data masking. I'm not wed to that or anything, but I, I think it's a good starting point. Yeah. My concern is that if we don't begin to educate merchants and consumers about tokenization, someone else is going to do it for us. And that almost never ends well. You know, 20 years ago, well, while you've been in this business long enough, James, to realize that, you know, there was a time when, you know, it was 20 years ago or so when few people outside of the business really understood the concept of interchange. Right. You know, and then someone in the merchant community came up with the phrase swipe fee, and retailing groups embarked on a massive lobbying campaign to convince consumers and lawmakers that something needed, needed to be done about swipe fees. Well, what followed was the Durbin Amendment, and, uh, you know, and, and, and with the Durbin Amendment came mandated caps on debit card interchange. And, you know, while the mandate of, that was envisioned with the Durbin Amendment was that lower interchange, you know, this promise that lower interchange would result in lower prices paid by consumers never really happened. No, it didn't happen at all. I, I saw a study recently about that. It didn't, uh, they, they you know, did studies and showed that there was like zero effect. Yeah. In fact, there was a study that the Federal Reserve, uh, Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond did that showed that interchange actually rose on small ticket items in the years immediately following enactment of the Durban caps. Of course. And and many of those merchants uh, responded by uh, raising their prices. 
Yeah. You know, uh, here's what a, a Richmond Fed economist wrote. He said, uh, many small merchants have tried to offset their higher – small ticket merchants have tried to offset their higher rates by raising prices, mm-hmm. encouraging customers to pay with alternative payment methods, or dropping card payments altogether. Well, and I think I think it really goes back to like the big mistake that they made with the Durban Amendment is that, you know, if you look at the U.K., uh, the U.K. had regulated it down to uh, 20 basis points and 30 basis points, respectively. So it was a, it was a right. flat percentage, whereas mm-hmm. in the U.S. we did that 22 cent per item, fee, uh, per item fee and then right. five basis points. Well, you know, 22 cents on a thousand dollars is like nothing. And 20, nothing. 22 cents on two dollars is everything. So, it's, you know, right. Exactly. And that's that was a huge problem with it. Yeah. And and, it, and you know, I think the the other thing that 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 it that it uh almost, you know, negated was, you know, research shows that more and more consumers are using debit cards, right? Right. So you're going to get more of those disparities over time. Sure. Yeah. What it, what it basically did is it gave a huge break to, you know, Walmart and Target and yes. the other the other retailers that, you know, already right. have lower interchange anyway. But, um, yeah. you know, where, where they basically, you know, it dro- I mean, the interchange cost overall dropped by what, I think 30 or 40 percent. Um, you know the overall interchange. The problem is there was a huge disparity with those small ticket merchants the and small ticket versus the big ticket. The small merchants versus you know who can't really negotiate right. like the WalMarts and the Targets of the world. And you know what? So, you know what's so funny about that, Patty? Is to, uh, I don't remember where I saw this at, but I saw the original report that came out. So like you know when they make this legislation, they have these uh, groups of experts. It's called a conference report. Sure. There you go. So the right. conference report came out, and it was supposed to be eleven cents, and I think eleven cents and fifteen basis points. Right. Um, and then randomly, the senators decided that they knew more about it, of course, than the experts. So it, it, it ended up at twenty-two cents and five basis points. <laughs> it's like it's right. so stupid, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. And 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 again, and they also they punted to the Fed, said. Said you set this, but they really didn't give them any parameters except right. to stay within that twenty-two cent right, right. ballpark. Yeah, so they just said, okay, cool, you know, twenty-two cents then. Right, and you know, I mean, I admit that the Fed is not necessarily the expert on retail payments, but it knows a little bit more about the market than right congressmen it, and senators do. Sure, sure. You know, so I just wanted to talk a little bit about tokenization, also, James, sure. yeah. so every, you know, yeah. everybody understands, you know. And, you know, tokenization primarily takes aim at e-commerce fraud, which, as we know, has been spiraling out of control with the proliferation of EMV cards. Um, And and what it does is it prevents fraudsters from accessing card account information and creating bogus replacement cards. Uh, With tokenization, online purchasers, purchasers can maintain card information on file without risking that information getting compromised to breaches. Uh, it, it protects customers' numbers, customer card account numbers, by replacing each card account number, or each you know each co- account with an algorithmically generated number or token. Those tokens then are used to process payments, and the corresponding account numbers are held in secure token vaults, which can be accessed by merchants and their acquiring partners or, or whoever needs them on an ad, on needed basis as needed basis. Tokens also help to prevent service disruptions, since card information is automatically updated when newer replacement cards get issued. And this is a big deal, because you know a, a study, you know a study I recently saw from Mastercard uh, suggests that half of all online shoppers 
save their credit card information on multiple e-commerce sites. Of course. Of course. I mean, don't we? I mean, I I thought half was pretty. A, a I'm low surprised. Yeah, honest. exactly. <laughs> you know, because I I I, I can. I can think of at least a half dozen sites that I have my numbers. Right. You know, on and and I'll be honest. One of the things that drives me crazy is, you know, um, I have my card account on. You know, I have my number on a, on an on file with a with an e-commerce merchant. Then my card gets replaced, and when I go to charge, it's like, eh, you know. Yep. Yep, I just uh, I actually just ran into that yesterday. We were trying to get a uh, rent a movie to watch on a you know our, our freezing cold day with the kids right, head off school. Right. So we're trying to watch a movie, and here I'd forgotten that uh, I got a new bank card and I didn't update it in my Apple uh, right? account, and I couldn't you know oh you can't rent this movie until you update your card, and of course I can't do it from the Apple TV. I have to log in online, and oh my, uh-huh. you know, it's such a pain, you know. <laughs> oh, the same thing happened to me. The same thing happened to me doing a movie just last week, and it was like. I had to go from the living room back to my office, right. you know, pull up the site, right. go through the whole thing. And it still took, you know, 15 or 20 minutes to, to take effect. Right. So, yeah, so, so I've, so, heard, I've heard that Visa and MasterCard, that, so that's what you're talking about. They're, they're talking about potentially solving that problem as well as, like, with subscriptions and stuff where – Yes, actually. Right? Yeah, in fact, I was just going to get to that in a Okay, minute. cool. Um, but let me just touch real one more point I wanted to say sure. about the benefits of, uh, of tokenization from the merchant's perspective is that it diminishes the hassles of PCI compliance. Of course. Since they're not storing customer card information and the inf- any information passing through d- devices is masked and therefore of no value to fraudsters. Right, right. Um, and of course, you know, by itself, it's not going to work. Tokenization needs to be paired with point-to-point encryption, at least for the first time that a customer's card is swiped, tapped, or keyed in. Right. But but um, the, good, the good thing is, though, that's usually handled by a larger... You know, company. So, like, exactly. so, so, like, as an example, like, we have, you know, like, my company that does the self storage software, you know, we mm-hmm. use the, the NMI gateway. And so, right. when somebody puts their information in, it doesn't even touch our server. It goes directly to the NMI, what they call their secure vault. Their and secure then, vault. And then yep. they send us back a token or just a, basically a bunch of numbers and, a, you know, numbers. Right. And then we have to, whenever we charge those people on a monthly basis, we have to submit that, uh, that special token or whatever to NMI along with our unique API key and those two pieces of information mm-hmm. together allow us to charge the card that corresponds to those numbers but we right. we never in that process even see any credit card numbers or any information like that right I mean and, and to me that is like it's awesome it takes us out of it, scope yeah exactly I mean you know I, I, a guy I talked to named um, Rustin Miles he um, is a co-founder of Bluefin sure you know, he was he was telling me that uh, you know point to point encryption coupled with tokenization, he calls it a one two punch of data devaluation. Mm, yeah. And he he said that you know thousands of merchants are using this combination to reduce their PCI compliance requirements by up to ninety percent. Yeah. You know, oh, going yeah. Going from like th- three hundred required security controls down to thirty, which is kind of what you were saying. I mean, you still have to. There's still some basic PCI stuff you sure. have to do. But none of that. Um, pretty much the only, it. pretty much the only PCI stuff you have to do is basically confirm that you don't need to do any PCI stuff. Exactly. <laughs> you know, basically we just, that's it. Yeah, like you we, know? like we have to confirm, like we don't take credit card numbers over the phone and enter them into right. the website because then that would put us right back into scope. Um, exactly. And so it's like, no, no, we, you know, so basically all we have to do is fill out a self-assessment questionnaire that says, you know, we aren't doing any Everything's of these cool. things. Yeah. Right. 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 
So, so yeah, you know, and so for, for tokenization to live up to its potential, it can't be a one-off proposition, obviously. All stakeholders are going to need to embrace this. And, uh, you know, Visa and MasterCard have been doing a lot in this, as you said. You know, Visa began touting tokenization back in 2014. And last year, this goes to what you and I were just discussing, um, Netflix became the first company to begin using uh, Visa's tokenization service to protect cards on file. Um, they now have expanded the service to all 19 countries where Netflix operates. Hmm. Uh, MasterCard's also been actively pushing tokenization. Um, it's working with several um, security uh, firms and acquirers, including WorldPay, Square, Stripe, uh, to deliver tokenization to retailers. And it's been working with issuers and has said that it aims to enable token save services on all MasterCard branded cards by 2020. Hmm. You know, it, it's such a huge competitive advantage. I think, you know, like I'll give you an example. Uh, I was just talking to our lead developer yesterday. And so, you know, we have uh, with our uh, different subscription services, we have a relationship with a large, you know, processor that everybody would know of. And mm-hmm. um, we utilize them because we were using Stripe originally. And, you know, the fees are really high with Stripe. Well, right. You know, just yesterday we were talking about this. It's kind of funny. I didn't even know you were doing this today, but my lead developer and I were talking, and he said, do you realize how much money we're losing? Because he said, with Stripe now having the full tokenization, you know, we lose, like, I don't even know what it is, X percentage, 2 3% of our subscribers every month because their card uh, expires. Expired. 2 to 3% per month. That's, that's or, pretty significant. It's James. something like that. Yeah, it was like, yeah. it might be a little less. Even it was if something it was only like 1%, that. It would yeah, still it's be a lot. And so what yeah. he told me is, he's like, do you realize that with Stripe, and he showed me that they, they now have embraced this tokenization where it automatically updates the person's card on file if they get a new card. And uh-huh. he's like, do you realize like how much revenue, like even though Stripe's more expensive, technically it might be a better deal because of that one thing, you know? Because of that one thing, right? Yeah, so yeah. it's definitely something I think a lot of the processors and acquirers need to be aware of. Like if you don't offer that to your e-commerce merchants, that's a really powerful incentive for, for people to go with Stripe and Square and these other companies that have embraced it. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, to that point, Visa has said that it's working with at least – 60 acquirers and gateways to support this credential on file type to- tokenization. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and in 40 different markets. Wow. Yeah, that's going to be huge, I think. That's a that's yeah, a big I think so. selling point. Well, here's what uh, I I had took I jotted down a quote from a from a Visa exec uh and sorry and sorry uh, which is an interesting, you know, yeah. it's a tongue twister. <laughs> but, but anyway, Ansar said about this, you know, this work with the acquirers and gateways, quote, this opens up a whole world of possibilities for our merchants and partners to further evolve and innovate in digital payments. Yeah. I think that's a real important point because think about it. You know, how many, how many e-commerce provide, I mean, we already know that the, that the, that the uh, channel is growing. Right. Imagine how much more it could grow if these guys were not automatically in a high-risk situation. Yeah. You know, and it's really interesting, Patty. I think, like, you know, putting my sales hat on, um, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that's actually been a little challenging at selling a lot of these e-commerce merchants is that, 
you know, the, the cost of switching for them is enormous. You know, it's enormous, not like, sure. not like, oh, I got to swap out a terminal. It's like, I got to pay my developers $10,000 to implement a new shopping cart or whatever. Right. Um, right. But, you know, what's interesting to me is that, you know, this is two very big selling points. One is security, which is obviously on everybody's mind. Um, right. Uh, especially in that space. Um, so it's security, you know, taking them out of scope and all of that. And then also, though, on top of it, it's, you know, extra revenue by, you know, everybody wants to, even if it's retail and they're not a subscription service, they want to keep their customers' payment information on file so that if that person decides to buy in a year, they can still do so. Right. Right. And so this is a huge way to increase revenue by less friction because you can still keep that person's card information on file even after the mm -hmm. card expires. That's a really big you know. Yeah, and, and, and I have a personal example for this. It's very interesting. You know, I, 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 had, a, I had to put down one of my dogs this week, and um, it was a traumatic experience, yeah. obviously. Yeah. And I went to, the, went to the place where they were going to do it, and, of course, on my way there, I, have a, I had a card that I use for my pets, okay? Right. And um, on my way there, I realized that I forgot to bring that card with me. So, you know, I go in and I'm like, oh, man, I'm so sorry. I said, I forgot to bring the card that I use for this. Um, and, you know, is it okay if we do this and I come back tomorrow? And they're like, oh, don't worry, Miss Murphy. We have your card on file. Right. You know, just sign the form, you know, just yeah. sign this form and we'll take care of everything for you. Right, right. Yeah, much less. What a huge friction. difference that made yeah. for me. Can you, so you know, you're, I'm, I'm traumatized anyway, right? Right, right. You don't have to worry the about that. The idea that, oh, I'm going to have to use my debit card for this. I really don't want to use my debit card for this. And right. They're like, don't worry, don't worry. It's all automated. Right, <laughs> <You know>? right. <laughs> so wow. it's not even, it's not just, in, you know, I mean, you know. It's just, you know, there's so many ways that this yeah. can benefit merchants and Absolutely. consumers. Absolutely. You know, and you got, we have the card brands, the acquirers, and the issuers are all on board with tokenization. Right. You know, now we need to get merchants and consumers on board. And I think, sure. you know, my, my pitch is that this is going to require education and maybe a change in nomenclature. You know, yeah. we, let's just make it simple so everybody gets it. Right, right. Huh. Yeah, I love it. Really good information Great. today, Patty. That's some, some really interesting stuff for sure. Yeah, I, I really hope it's helpful to people. And like I said, if we can, uh, you know, it's in everybody's best, in, best interest to make payments as secure as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as convenient for the consumer as possible. As convenient for the consumer, and and you know, let's us, you know, let's just take this 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 uh, bull by the tail and 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 move forward with it. You know, don't don't think that this is just something that Visa and Mastercard can take care of. No. You know, the right. ISOs, the agents, the acquirers, all have a role to play. Yeah, absolutely. Well, awesome, good stuff today, Patty. Thanks so much. Okay, bye bye. This is Questions from the Field, brought to you by InstantQuoteTool.com. With over 30 training courses covering everything from sales objections to statement analysis, ISOs are using our learning management system to help new agents understand the industry and how to sell merchant services. Industry veterans love our courses because we dive deeper into concepts such as interchange and explore new industry trends like cash discounting, NFC, and the resurgence of American Express with the OptBlue program. Put all of these training courses together with the leading proposal creation tool for merchant services agents in the field, and we believe our branded ISO solution and individual user package is a must-have. Visit instantquotetool.com today or email support at instantquotetool.com 
to learn more. My journey with sales management began about uh, 15 years ago. I was sitting at my desk uh, and I was selling lawn care services uh, for True Green, a division of Service Master uh, out near Chicago. And I had been there only a few months, uh, and I had told my uh, sales manager when I came in that, hey, I'm going to be the best salesman you've ever had, and I'm going to sell really hard, but um, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm going to go back into business. And so he knew that coming into it. And so he calls me into his office and says, hey, James, here's the situation. So you know, he said, as you know, the do not call registry came out. And so that was a big deal back then. It basically meant that you know many of these businesses had their entire model predicated on being able to call uh, consumers at their homes and sell them stuff. And that's how it was at True Green. And so, you know, that entire business model basically was over. It was dead. Uh, you couldn't do that anymore. And so, um, so that was a pretty big, uh, that was a pretty big issue. Uh, and so called me in and said, Hey, you know, corporate wants us to try going door to door, knocking on people's doors to sell them lawn care. He said, you know, Honestly, he said, I don't think it's going to work. It may not work. And uh, he said, but I know you're planning to move on anyway. So I thought, you know, you're looking for a challenge. Would you like to have a couple salespeople on your team and then get out in the field and start knocking on people's doors and selling lawn care? And so we were actually the one of the very first, uh, if not the first, I'm not 100% sure on that, but we might have been actually the first um, branch at True Green to do door-to-door sales. And long story short, it was a, a huge success. Uh, it was really exciting. I was in the right place at the right time. And it was a great idea, actually. And we were able to have at that one branch, I grew the team to where we had about 32 salespeople and uh, really exploded the growth of that uh, of that branch of True Green. Then I went on to become a regional sales manager and, and even travel around and, and help establish door-to-door sales teams. So then when I moved to Pennsylvania and I started uh, in merchant services, you know, in the back of my mind, I always kind of figured, all right, once I build my own portfolio, I'm probably going to want to recruit a sales team. And so um, I've done that in this industry. Uh, I recruited uh, the first sales team I recruited uh, was actually a referral team that I built. I uh, had three different processing companies I was working with simultaneously. And if you added them all up together, we were doing like 122, maybe 150 deals um, a month uh, with that team. And that one took me a long time to build up, uh, but that's a, another story. Uh, but many of you are familiar with my story with YouTube videos and all that. And so took a long time. You know, our strategy there was using YouTube videos and <clears throat> getting people on board that way. And so that, that strategy took a long time. Uh, then about uh, seven years ago, I started building um, another team for a new company where it was actually my team. And so I built the ISO myself and I uh, had employees and, and everything like that. And so uh, the first month we did that one, we did about 120 deals uh, the first month. And we were able to grow that team to do about 200 deals a month uh, over time. And so, um, you know, that was a lot of fun. About five years ago, I sold off that ISO. Uh, you know, white labeled all of our videos. So we removed any mention in our videos of any particular processing company or any, uh, you know, reference to recruiting or anything like that. And I started doing consulting. So I really enjoy that. I like uh, helping people with their business plan and strategy. And so I started traveling around, doing a lot of remote sessions, things like that. And so helping uh, ISOs in this industry to build their sales teams. And so I started to notice a lot of patterns, uh, some good, many bad, uh, as I worked with uh, different ISOs and different companies to help them build their sales teams. Um, And then really what sparked me wanting to do this particular segment is that um, about two and a half months ago now, we started our six-week jumpstart program. 
And so this was a chance for me to kind of come full circle and, and, and get back into working with individual reps. So, you know, even though I done the cons with the consulting, of course, I spent a lot of time with individual reps. I was there representing their, you know, ISO, their processing company or whatever. And I still do that with the six week jumpstart, too, for those that, you know, the ISOs that want their reps trained more extensively. But, um, you know, I would say 80 percent or so of the participants in that program, I work with like 20 or 30 agents a month. Um, those are individual agents that are looking at me as a mentor and a coach. And so, you know, after working with these uh, individual agents now for a couple months, it just really brought back a lot of things. And it's been interesting kind of the, uh, you know, the comparison between when I see what other people are doing when I'm working with ISOs and then what I'm doing with these agents and then thinking back to the success that we had uh, even in my very first sales team at True Green. And so I've been thinking a lot about sales management lately. And so I'm excited to talk to you today about five keys to building a merchant sales team, five keys to building a merchant sales team. And so I want to just jump right in and give you some real practical information today. I hope that it is a help to you. Um, I love sales management. I love salespeople. Um, I really enjoy working with them. Um, it's a lot of fun. So number one, before you jump into building a team, you need to understand the long-term profitability and the short-term cash flow implications. Long-term profitability, short-term cash flow implications. Many people, quite frankly, just shouldn't be building a sales team. They just shouldn't. Okay, let me, let me explain something to you. If you're making 12, 15 sales a month personally and you're getting all of the residuals and you're, and you're probably getting some money up front or you're not paying any money out up front to get a deal... Well, if you start bringing on salespeople, what if you bring on three or four salespeople and each of them is only selling, you know, five deals a month or something initially? Uh, it's going to be a really long time before you're going to be making anywhere close to the kind of residual growth that you could make all by yourself. Um, and the residual growth you're going to get is going to cost you money. So building a sales team is awesome and the long term profitability can be really good uh, if you know what you're doing and you're a good manager. But uh, the short-term cash flow is terrible. Uh, usually you have to pay money to get the accounts, you know, whether it's upfront bonus money to the agents or equipment costs or whatever it is. So it's usually costing you money. Plus, you're going to have your time where you're training, 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 and you're you know, working with agents and taking phone calls and things like that. And so it's just a whole different thing. And so take some time. You know, I'm thinking about an ISO I was just at uh, a couple weeks ago in New York. Um, and they're you know, looking into starting a new sales office there to sell cash discounting. Uh, over the phone. And, you know, I talked them through it. And one of the things we did is I took about an hour, hour and a half, and I actually just created a complete financial projection based on the deal that they had negotiated with the uh, processing company. And I made like a calculator where they could change the assumptions around to see how it would look with different deal structures. And when we actually got done with that, you know, it was like, hmm, you know what? <laughs> uh, maybe we should talk to another company and get another, uh, you know, proposal because, um, you know, the, the deal was good, long-term profitability, but short-term cash flow was terrible. Um, and so there's different ways to structure it. And so you just need to understand those implications um, before you jump in. So not the uh, sexiest point, um, but definitely something you got to be aware of. You know, you need to understand those projections and how that looks because the long-term profitability can look really exciting. But again, the short-term cash flow, you got to make sure you have enough money uh, to do this and make sure that it actually makes sense. Number two. So the first key is you need to understand long-term profitability and short-term cash flow implications. Key number two, start off with too much training. Start off with too much training. What do I mean by this? Well, in our industry, there is this uh, misconception that if I train my agents too much, they're going to be 
too confused and they're going to be, you know, oh my, like, what am I going to do? You know, I, they have so much training and they know so many things and then it's information overload and they got to process it and, you know, all of that. Now that there is definitely a point to that. And we'll get to that in step number three. Uh, certainly you don't want people to get into this, uh, you know, information paralysis where they're just trying to learn everything and, and not take any action. But initially the first, I'm talking about the first two or three days, you really need to give them a ton of training. We just started doing that when I uh, developed a six-week jumpstart program. Uh, we did day one and day two, each have like five or six hours of video content. And we did that intentionally because, you know, that's like, what, it's way too much. Are you kidding me? Like five or six hours of videos like that's like we go through the whole industry. We talk about issuing banks and acquiring banks and we talk about how to read statements and we talk about different pitches and key objections that you can overcome. And, you know, everything you can imagine about the industry. We touch on cash discounting and, you know, whatever. It's just we cover everything. And you might think, well, that's information overload. They're not going to absorb all that information. And you'd be correct. They're not going to absorb all the information. But here's what it does. When you offer too much training the first couple days, it gives the agent confidence to take action. It gives the agents confidence to take action. In this industry, what I hear more than anything else in this industry is, I didn't get enough training. I don't know what I'm doing when I talk to agents. And, and by the way, I have very clear proof of that. Look at our YouTube channel. You know, go to youtube.com slash CC sales pro. We have like 1.5 million views on YouTube. Do you know why? Do you know where every single one of those views came from? Every single one of those views came from an agent that got recruited into this industry that wasn't trained that then went looking for more training and they found our videos and I'm glad they did. But, you know, you need to train these agents because they're looking for that, not because they need all the information, but because it's going to give them confidence. And then, of course, they're going to want to come back later and review the training again, watch more videos or whatever. But it'll just help them initially to get that big batch of like, wow, I know this. And then emphasize that to the agent. Make sure they understand and say, boy, do you realize how much you know about this industry? You know so much more than these other people. You know so much more than these merchants that are out there. You know so much more than your competitors. And make sure that they have that confidence to take action. Number three, focus on prospecting actions. Focus on prospecting actions. Uh, this is probably the most important one I could give you today. It really is. It's just, it's just absolutely crucial. It's hard for me to even uh, overemphasize the importance of this because the problem is in this industry, we talk to agents about results right off the bat, the first three or four weeks. And that's a huge mistake because when you talk to agents about results, like when I call an agent and say, so uh, how many sales did you make last week? Right? On the six week jumpstart program, I do a weekly call with each agent. And when I call them up, I don't ever say, how many sales did you make last week? No. And you can ask anybody on the program. I always say the same thing when I call them. I always call and say, so how's the prospecting going out there? Right? And when they try to get away from the action steps and the effort to the results and they say, pretty good. I actually got a statement yesterday and then I, I think I got a sale coming tomorrow. And I'm like, oh, that's great. How many people did you talk to last week? How many doors did you walk into? How many calls did you make? You've got to focus on action because with salespeople, one of the core kind of laws of sales management is that when you talk to the agents about results and you have results-oriented goals, one of two things is going to happen with a new agent. They're either going to be complacent or they're going to be discouraged. So if you call an agent and they had a really good day today and you're like, how'd it go? Oh, man, I got a sale today. 
you're like, wow, you had a successful day. Congratulations. Well, what you don't know is they actually watched Netflix all morning and then they went out in the field and they walked into three businesses and the third one, the person just happened to hate their current company and they signed on the spot. And then they got that one and then they went back home and they you know, wrote the sale up and sent it in and then they went back to watching Netflix. And so you're reinforcing that behavior in their mind that that's a really good day. And so they're going to get complacent and they're going to say, boy, this, this industry really is easy. I guess I can do whatever I want and just walk into a couple businesses and I'll make a sale. And they'll keep thinking that for a couple weeks. But actually, they just had a lucky day. Or the alternative will be you'll have an agent that actually got up, got dressed, went out in the field. They walked into 30 businesses. And you call them up and say, hey, how's it going? How many sales did you make? And they're like, ah, I didn't make any sales today. You didn't? Oh, man, you got to get going, man. This is, this is not good, you know? And all of a sudden, you're sending the message they didn't have a successful day. Even though, really, they did have a successful day. They walked into 30 businesses, and it just so happened that they had an unlucky day. So when you talk about results initially, before somebody has a full pipeline, what you're doing is you're encouraging either complacency or discouragement, and you don't want to do that. Instead, you call them up and say, hey, so what's your goal for the week? And they're like, my goal is to make three sales. No, 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 no. That's, that's, a, that's a dream. That's a result. That's something you hope happens, but that's not something you totally control because you're just getting started. When I say what's your goal for the week, what I mean is what is your goal for your actions, for your efforts, right? How many doors are you going to walk into? How many businesses are you going to walk into? How many people are you going to call? You know, all that. When you do that, now when you call them on Monday and you say, so how's it going so far? You don't have to worry about did they make sales or not. They say, well, I, you know, I had a pretty good day. I had some good contacts. You're like, okay, did you, did you walk into 20 businesses like you had planned? Well, I walked into 15. Oh, so you didn't have a good day. Man, I'm sorry. Well, no, I, I actually had a pretty good day. I got some statements. Well, I know, but that was just lucky because your goal was to walk into 20 and you didn't do that. So that's, that's not a good day. What do you, how are you tomorrow? Is there a way tomorrow you can put some extra time in and walk into 25? So that way we can get you back on track. You see what I'm doing? Focusing on results. I'm sorry, not focusing on results, <laughs> focusing on action, focusing on effort, focusing on prospecting. Okay, number four, serve each agent or fire them. Serve each agent or fire them. One of the other disturbing trends I see in our industry is the what I call the constant evaluation stage. Uh, every agent in this industry is in the constant evaluation stage with their sales manager. The sales manager is evaluating. Can they do this? Are they taking action? Are they doing what they need to do? Should I continue investing time in them? Are, are the support people, I think they're wasting time with this agent. I think this agent's taking too much of my time. I think they're calling me too much. I think they're texting me too much. I think they don't know what they're doing. I think that they're annoying. I think that they're frustrating. I think they have too many personal issues, you know? Uh, is it worth it? Should I have this agent on my team? Oh my goodness gracious. How do you sleep at night? Drama, drama, drama. Let me give you a tip. Either serve them or fire them. Either serve them or fire them. Be binary about it, okay? You need to answer two questions and only two questions. Does this person know how to sell small business owners? Do they have a track record of success in selling small business owners? If the answer to that question is yes, then you should hire them. Then you need to ask the question, is this person taking action on a daily basis sufficient to eventually get them results? If the answer to that question is yes, then you need to serve them and you need to do whatever they want. Okay, top salespeople are a pain to deal with and you need to deal with the fact that they're a pain to deal with. 
Top salespeople want what they want when they want it. They don't want to deal with details. They are going to point out every flaw in the organization because they have very high standards and very high expectations. They're full of ideas. They're creative. They're going to drive you nuts unless you look at it and say, that's how it is. And I love top salespeople. I think they're awesome because top salespeople are going to push you to make improvements and to be creative. Let them push you. Do whatever they need. They don't want to do the paperwork themselves. They can call it in over the phone to one of your admins. I mean, like, whatever they need. Do anything that they need. Help them out in any way that you can possibly help them until you get to a point where you say, you know what? Actually, either I don't think they know how to sell small business owners or they do, but they're not taking enough action to be successful. And once you've determined that you can't fix those two things, then you need to immediately terminate that relationship and put your focus on somebody else. Number five, expect success, reward success. Expect success, reward success. When you're working with salespeople, you need to expect success. How do we have such stellar results with my very first sales team? Very simple. The average in our region, we were selling lawn care, the average agent was selling about 3000 to 3200 a week in revenue for lawn care. Our team was selling an average of 8000 a week. Why? Because we put a minimum in place of 5000 for one thing, and then we set up a number of 8000 and I said, look, if you want to get my time, if you want me to help you personally to make more sales, you got to be doing at least 8000 a week. And so we had a culture of success. We expected success. Okay, you got to expect success. You got to talk about this is where results come in, right? After somebody's been there for a month or two, their pipeline is filled up. Now you're talking about, hey, your full-time merchant services sales, you should be making 12 to 15 deals a month. When they bring you five or six, you say, well, you know, well, we're, we got to get those numbers up. You know, are you taking action? Do you know, do, are you sure you've got all the training that you need? Ongoing training, ongoing sales training, help them out. Okay. So you need to make sure that your agents are trained. And then as long as they're trained and they're taking action, you've got to expect results. And those results are going to drive their action. Use a leaderboard, put things up, show them, hey, here's the results. Here's what somebody else is doing and push your team to excellence. And then as people succeed, you need to reward them with your time, reward them with flexibility, reward them with amazing service, reward them with amazing support, and obviously reward them with lots and lots and lots of money. <laughs> Now, um, one thing we always do in our interviews at the end is I always ask our interviewee uh, where you would go to learn more about them. And so let me give you a little bit of that information about us. If you're building an ISO, building a team, uh, you want to get some more information about it, uh, we have an amazing six-week jumpstart program. You can learn about that by going to ccsalespro.com. Again, I only work with about 20 to 30 agents a month. Uh, you know, you put all this time into recruiting these agents and then you tell them good luck <laughs> and you can't imagine why your agent attrition is so bad. Let me see if I can figure it out for you. Uh, it's because you're recruiting people and you're not training them at all. Uh, so check that out at ccsalespro.com right at the top. You can click on the six-week jumpstart program. We can fully brand it, uh, white label it, uh, adjust the content of it to match you know, what you're doing with your team. Um, and then also, of course, we have our instant quote tool, which has all kinds of training built into it. It's a really cool system for ISOs that has training and that has our, our quote tool. So if you have questions about any of that stuff, or you just want to talk to me about that or talk to me about my consulting services, uh, you can reach me by emailing me james at ccsalespro.com. James at ccsalespro.com. This has been a lot of fun. I hope that you have great success as you are building your merchant sales team. Have an awesome day. Thank you for listening to the Merchant Sales Podcast. 
Whether you are an industry veteran, processing executive, or just trying to learn about the payment space, we appreciate your time. The Merchant Sales Podcast is a joint production from greensheet.com and ccsalespro.com. We hope you will tune in next week for more information and tips on building your merchant services business.